We're going to continue in our study through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to finish up chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 14 through 31. Luke 16, verses 14 through 31. The title of the study is Values and Determination. The Pharisees have the wrong values. Well, there's a group of people that are determined to have their place in the kingdom of God. And so that's what we're going to kind of work through this evening as we come into chapter 16. Jesus is going to continue to speak on what really matters. The Pharisees derided Jesus, we're going to see this, um, as because he opened the doors to sinners. Remember earlier in the chapter, we read, in all these sinners, maybe even back into chapter 15 that we read that, but chapter... Um, yeah, I think it was chapter 15, where we read that all these sinners were coming to him. And it's that idea, it's that not just like one or two came here or there, but it's like this um, past tense movie reel that Luke writes of. It's like there was a stream of people that were just coming to Jesus, and they were sinners. They were tax collectors and prostitutes. They were the unwanted. And the and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they just sucked air through their teeth in disgust at, these, at Jesus, that he would spend any time with them. How could you dare to be with those people? So Jesus breaks out in the first half of chapter 16 and giving parables about finding something that was lost. He talks about finding a lost coin and the joy that that woman had in finding that lost coin. He talks about the shepherd who found that lost lamb. And then he gives the ultimate uh, story, I think, and parable of the father who had his lost son return and how there was such joy, there was such rejoicing. A party was immediately put together. And of course, the older son looked at that and he's like, this is just terrible. How could you bring somebody like that back into the house and throw a party so quickly? And the father says, these things ought to be so. And of course, those Pharisees represent those um, actually, the older son in the parable of the prodigal son represents those that are um, looking at uh, these believers coming to Jesus. He goes on to give a teaching about being good stewards and, and using what is in our hands properly. Of course, they are the unfaithful steward. <laughs> they are not handling things properly. And Jesus talks about these things. He talks about um, handling them well and serving God and and not living for mammon. Well, as we move into chapter 16, verse 14, we're going to see that they, again, they just are disgusted with his teaching. They're going to mock his teaching, and Jesus is going to show them that they have the wrong values. And there are people that have a right determination, and he's going to call them to that. So let's begin reading at verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Something's changed, right? Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one, for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. 
So we'll begin looking at verses 14 through 18 where he talks about the justified. Or the question really is, is it justified or lawless? You know, uh, who, these guys are justifying themselves or is, are they actually the lawless ones? And so in verse 14, they mock the message he had just given about not loving money and about being a good steward of what's been placed in your hands. And they felt the rebuke against them. And they, they laugh at it. They mock at his message because they believe that having money was actually an indication of your favored standing with God. And so for Jesus to kind of downplay the, the place of money in a person's hands, um, to them it was just like, what are you talking about? This is the one way you can actually know that people are right with God. But of course they had an ulterior motive, didn't they? They loved money. This is what really made them tick. This is the thing. That was their value. They loved money more than anything else and not true righteousness. It wasn't. They, they used money to be a means to justify themselves and all the while pretending like they love righteousness. And obviously I'm rich and so therefore you got to know I love righteousness. But they were far from that. They loved money so much that they were blinded to the fact that God was standing right in front of them, speaking to them and talking to them and rebuking them, and yet they had sufficiently hardened their hearts enough to not even be touched by it. That's a pretty scary thought, isn't it? As that you could be confronted by God himself and be untouched by it, and yet, they certainly had this unique encounter of God standing in, their pre in, in front of them in the flesh. But listen, whether it's God in the flesh or God in your bedroom, it's still God who's speaking. And that is significant. And however and whenever God speaks to you, we can look at them and say, how in the world can they do this? But how in the world do we rebuff the Lord when he speaks to us? through a brother or sister who comes to us, or through a message, or through a quiet time, or just a thought that pops into our mind that is so biblical and so true as we drive down the road, and yet we dismiss it and we push it away. It really is amazing how prideful man can be. And let's not throw the stones at them too quickly. Let's examine our own hearts. How do I respond to the rebuke of the Lord? Do I deride him? Do I laugh at him? And you know what? The spirit of those that derided the teaching of Jesus is alive and well today. That wicked spirit that hears what Jesus has to say about love and kindness and holiness and purity. And the world stands back and they laugh and they, they laugh and they mock and they evenly are at this point where they're now just beginning to grind their teeth at any that would want to speak of the word of the Lord. How will you respond? How will I respond if what happens to our brothers and sisters over in Afghanistan or in many places around the world and what has happened consistently down through the ages, how would we respond? Would we still hold and cling to the word of God? Look at verse 15. And the Lord just comes back at them and lets them know it's, it's God who justifies, not man. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God does not esteem what man esteems. 
Now, if you're esteeming what God esteems, then he esteems that, but that's his, not yours. But God, when the world is putting up their value system and saying, this is what we care for, this is what's important to us, these are the items of our worldview, and if you don't abide by these and cling to these, well, the Lord would say, I don't esteem what man esteems. As a matter of fact, what man esteems when it is in contradiction to the word of God, it is an abomination in his sight. I'm going to live my life my own way. I'm going to do what I want with my own talents and gift and time. I'm going to live my life however I want to, morally, sexually. You know, I'm going to do what I want. Well, that is an abomination in the sight of God. God does not esteem what man esteems. He doesn't look and take a poll and say, hmm, what's everybody thinking? Oh, I could get votes there. Now, that's what politicians do. It's amazing how men will trade in their value system in order to get the esteem of man. It happens. We see it. How quickly people change their opinions because the tide or the current of events has changed. Be led by the Word of God. Be led by the principles of the Word of God. Listen, it seems like right now, every couple of months, there's another crisis issue. Has anybody else been aware of this? And you know what? I have not felt compelled to address every one of those crisis issues that comes up. Because we've got a Bible. We've got the Word of God. And it leads us and it guides us and it teaches us on what to do and what to think and how to respond. And just because a new thing pops up in the culture, I don't get nervous about it. My mind's not frantically trying to figure out what to do. And you aren't either. Just keep walking with Jesus. Just keep obeying the Word of God. Well, I don't know what to do in this crisis. Then just keep on doing what you are doing before the crisis came. It's pretty safe. Well, what if it's wrong? Then I believe that Jesus will lead you and guide you in what to do. He speaks to the church. He speaks to you. So these, they valued money. They didn't value true righteousness. God is the one who justifies and not man. Don't try and find your approval out in the world because what they approve of today is not going to be approved of in short order. They esteemed, as we mentioned already, wealth as an indication or a proof of justification with God. And certainly the Lord can bless somebody. And we can give glory to the Lord for those blessings. But money alone does not indicate that somebody is right with the Lord. The Lord in the New Testament has more to say to the poor than uh, being in good standing with, with God than the rich. And of course, you maybe can understand why that is now. is because of the twisted thoughts and ideas that they had. God looks at a man's heart and he knows what's going on. He sees what is really being valued. He sees where somebody wants to live their life and he examines that. I find that comforting. I also find that challenging. That even when everybody else around me might be saying, good job, good job, good job, if it's not a good job in my heart, then don't find comfort there. But also when everybody's saying, bad job, bad job, bad job, if I am doing what I am supposed to before the Lord, I can say, but he knows my heart. People can say what they want to say. God knows my heart. I will stand before him. This is what Paul said to the Corinthians. He goes, I consider it a small thing that you judge me. 
I don't even judge myself. I'm not justified in this, but I will give an answer to God. And so Jesus is just esteeming this. But the question I want to ask you is, what do you esteem? In your life, what is esteemed? I pray that it's the Word of God. I pray that it's fellowship. I pray that it's, it's worship. I pray that it's evangelizing and walking in the gifts that God has given to me. Loving people, doing the right thing. I hope these are the things. You know, but what we see in the world is a lot of people, what they esteem is individualism. That mentality that says, what I think is the way it is, and I don't care what anybody else has to say. It's my truth, it's my belief, and therefore, leave me alone. Now, a lot of people will stand back and just say, oh yes, that is just so wonderful. But I ask you, when you stand before the Lord, do you expect to receive applause for deriding his word? So you can find people that will applaud for you right now and celebrate your defiance of the word of God, but you will stand and I will stand before the Lord one day. Just like these Pharisees, some esteem money. They feel like gaining wealth is all that they need. If I take care of myself in this life, I'm set. That's all I've got to worry about. But you know, money won't buy your way into heaven. Just ask the really successful farmer who tore down a barn to build another one so he could hold all of his goods only to find out that that night his soul was required of him. And full barns don't do anything in heaven. And so we must make certain that we have a right attitude. 1 Peter 1, 17-21 says, And remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites when he judges. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him doing, uh, during your time as foreigners here on earth. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. He paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him. For this purpose, long before the world began, but now in these, finals day, in these final days, he was sent to the earth for all to see. And he did this for you. Through Christ you've come to trust in God. And because God raised him from the dead and gave him great glory, your faith and hope can be placed confidently in God. That's from the New Living Translation. You see, Jesus paid the price. It's not silver and gold. It's the blood of the Lamb of God. And this is how. So you can accumulate massive amounts of wealth or even just enough to get by wealth. But that's not going to do anything for you to get into heaven. Because you must come and you must come through the blood of the Lamb. For some people what they esteem, maybe it's not individualism, maybe it isn't money, but what they esteem is fame. They live for the recognition of others. That was a problem with the Pharisees on top of the fact that they also love money a whole lot. They wanted to be esteemed. They wanted to be applauded. This is why we read in the scriptures that Pilate says he knew that these men had handed Jesus over to him because of, anybody know what it is? Jealousy. They were jealous of the Son of God. What did they have to be jealous of? They were jealous over the fact that people came to hear him teach, that they sat and they listened to him. They probably 
wanted him out of the way so they could get that prominent place back. He was, he was calling them out left and right. And although we don't have amens recorded in Jesus' sermons, you can bet there are people going, amen. I know that's right. I know what you're saying is true. And they were jealous. That's why they handed Jesus over. Because they wanted the fame. They wanted the attention. They wanted the applause. They wanted the esteem of men. But for all the wrong reasons. People will make all kinds of compromises in order to have a good standing in front of people. People will will change their ideas. They'll be silent about what they believe or what they hold to when they find out that others don't like it. And listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you believe in the word of God, then you are finding out left and right that people don't like what you have to say. And even if a good majority of people would even say, listen, I agree with you, but you still shouldn't say it. And that's a growing number too. And if we walk down that road of wanting to please people, then we will become silent as those bold heralds of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So don't live for that acceptance or that fame. It is fleeting and it is passing. What I want to live for, what you want to live for, is to hear the Lord say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Hopefully that's what you esteem of crossing the finish line and seeing the Lord stand to his feet and saying, I love the way you ran that race of your life. Welcome into heaven. You are here and here is your reward. This is how we want to come in. For some people, what they esteem is religion. And I use that in a negative sense, the word religion. It's not always used in a negative sense, by the way. If you ever want to read some guys that wrote in the 17 and 1800s and you think religion is only a negative word, you're going to have a hard time reading. Okay, So religion is not always used in a negative sense. But religion in the way that I'm thinking about it is the systems of the world that are not consistent with the word of God and seek to reach God on their own apart from the Lord. And you know what it is, is it's a way to affirm yourself. It's a way to affirm. You know, people are so quick to, you know, just say, this is the one thing you've got to do. You've got to live like this. You've got to do these things. And then you're right with the Lord. No, you've got to come through Jesus Christ and you can be right with the Lord. Others live for pleasure. That's what they esteem. At any cost, what I want to do is I want to have a thrill. I want to have an experience. I want to have the fullest that this life has. And so, for happiness or for the good feeling, for the adrenaline rush, for some kind of sensation, willing to give up just about anything in order to have that. Give up everlasting joy and pleasure in heaven for a moment that only lasts for a second. It's ironic that the people that are trading eternal, um, the eternal thrill of eternal life only get it for a few seconds, and yet it's what they want so much. And they're missing out on the fullness of the joy that will be had when we are in the presence of the Lord. These are five things that people esteem. I pray they're not on your list. I pray that what is on your list is pleasing the Lord and these other things that we talked about. The, of, of using my giftedness. Of just being you know, doggedly tenacious. It's like these are the things that are at the foundation of my faith and I'm not going to let them go and I'm going to cling to them. 
And so he says, yeah, I know you guys esteem other things, you know. Um, and he says, but those things are an abomination in the sight of God. And that's who you have to do with. You can justify yourself all day long. But what does the word say? Does the Lord himself justify you? In verses 16 through 18, Jesus begins to talk about some really determined people. So the question is, what are you determined about? Those are some values that people have. But what are you determined about? Let's read. The law and the prophets were until John. So Old Testament. And yet John the Baptist that he's referring to, who was the herald of the Messiah. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than, one for, than for one tittle of the law to fail. It's just a tiny little mark in, um, in their lettering of the Hebrew alphabet. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. So he talks about Listen, there was, a, there was a time and a place. And, and really what, he, what Jesus is going to do is like, you've rejected both of these. You've rejected the law and the prophets. And that's why he gives them verse 18. We'll come, we'll go more detail. But you reject the law and the prophets because you're divorcing your wives in the manner that you, you are. And we'll talk about what they were doing culturally. We know a lot about this. Because it, it was a theological debate that was written down and their, the, the, you know, their arguments um, and their positions are still available to be read today. So we've got quite a bit of insight into what they were thinking about with this. He says, you don't believe in the law of the prophets because you're divorcing your wives. And he says, and, and you don't, you're not receiving the kingdom of God. He says, but everyone's pressing into it. I imagine he's looking at those that were gathered around. He's looking at his disciples. And they didn't want anything to do with it. They were rejecting that. What they should have been doing is they should have been determined like those prostitutes and like those tax collectors that were streaming in to see him and to spend time with him and to repent of their sins and to get right with God. And these guys were pressing in. What were they pressing through? They were pressing through the Pharisee line and the scribe line with their arms folded, them kicking dust at them, spitting at them, and jeering them the whole way in. And they were just pressing through. I don't care what you guys, spit on me if you have to. I've got to hear what that man has to say. And people were pressing in. The disciples had pressed in. And since that time, people are still pressing in. Right now, our brothers and sisters over in Afghanistan, they are pressing in. They're pushing through what would look like, as we read it, you know, just in the newspaper, they're going to die. They're going to be put to death. And they're pressing into it because that's what they're determined to have. They're determined to be a part of the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of men. Because what they esteem is what God esteems and not the applause of men or even life itself. And he says, you guys don't receive the law and the prophets. Neither are you pressing into what's being offered right now, which is to say you reject everything God has to say. You are not open to anything that he has to say. And lest somebody think that Jesus was saying that, you know, uh, the law and the prophets, uh, um, uh, you know, it doesn't matter how you live your life, go on. 
And he says, no, listen, that stuff's not going to, it's going to be fulfilled. Morally, how we live before the Lord is important, and we must follow the Word of God. The ceremonial laws, they passed away, right? We, we know that those civil laws, they don't, they don't transfer into the church of Jesus Christ. But those moral laws, especially, we don't even have to think too hard about it, those moral laws that are repeated in the New Testament for how we should live tells us how we are to, to do this. You know, some will say, Oh, you know, Christians today, the church today, they're, they're saying that, you know, you don't have to keep this law. You don't have to keep that law. And, and they don't, you know, that, that these things have passed away um, and, and, you know, as a matter of justification. And so people want to keep the Sabbath. They want to keep the dietary laws in order to find justification before God. But there's the truth. The law never justified man. Never did. Man was never justified by what he did. Man was always justified by his faith in the Lord. And Abraham believed, and it was imputed unto him as righteousness. 430 years before the law was ever given, he was already being saved by his faith. And some will say, no, we've got to keep the law. I'll say, which law? What law do we have to keep? Is it, is it those... Uh, Truths that are revealed to us into the New Testament, I would say absolutely we've got to keep those. But say, no, we've got to keep the Old Testament law. Well, okay, you know, before the law existed, there was still the law of God written upon men's hearts and lives on how they had to live. When, when Moses penned the law, that was not the beginning of the law. <laughs> that was the beginning of the Mosaic law. But prior to that, there was already a law in existence. And so those who say that we... Like a guy like me, this is no, we do not have to uh, follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. Say, well, then he's done with the, you know, all kinds of morality. Well, wait a minute. Which law are you talking about? Because we're not saying that there's not a right and righteous way to live a life. It's just you've got to read all of Scripture and find out um, what part. So the accusation that maybe Luke felt some would uh, have at this point is that they're saying that, you know, the law was a bad thing. And he says, no, it's going to be fulfilled. And Jesus did fulfill the law. And then he goes into verse 18. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. And it's like, where did that come from? <laughs> Why are the, how did we get to a conversation about divorce when we're talking about these guys who derided Jesus' message? He didn't say a word about this. There's, I think there's only one reason, an explanation for why we got to the conversation of divorce. And it's because these guys were the ones that were abusing what was in the law to their own lustful and selfish and greedy ends. So how bad was it at this time with these guys? Well, um, there were two schools of thought. One was from Hillel. And, and, and he was popular in the first half century, um, uh, you know, uh, B.C. So, I mean, right, so that, he was the guy, 100, you know, or so, 50 B.C. He was the one that was really popular. And, and he believed and taught that there was, you know, except for, Divorce, there was no grounds for um, divorce. Except for adultery, there was no grounds for divorce. 
But then there was another guy that came along, and his name was Shammai. And he believed that you could divorce your wife for just about any reason. Because what it says is in the, in the law is that if you find something that's unclean in your wife, then you can give her a certificate of divorce and you can move on. And so uh, what Shammai said is that thing that is unclean can be pretty much just about anything. So what, what does he mean by this? Well, if she salted your eggs too much, it's written down. I'm not making this up. That if she salted your eggs or burnt your falafel, get rid of her. Divorce her. And um, another guy who subscribed to this, writing in 110 AD, his name was Rabbi Akiva. He even permitted a husband to divorce his wife if he found someone prettier than his current. So these guys were out of control. Um, And I know exactly where I read it, but I don't have the quote in front of me. But Dwight Pentecost cites that these guys would often, if they were living in the South, and they were going to be traveling to the North, they would divorce their wife that they had in the South to go to the rabbi conference up North. And they would have an arranged marriage up there. So they would divorce her. And when they got up there, They would have a new marriage, and when they left, they would divorce her and come back down and get another. These guys were out of control. And so um, Jesus is saying, hey, you know, the law and the prophets, what about that? And he goes and begins to talk about divorce. And I would venture to say, because of context, that every one of the guys that was deriding his message were ones that were abusing Uh, women. They were casting them aside and taking them on for their sexual pleasure alone. And then when they were done, they would move on to the next one and they were breaking the law of Moses. And they would say, but wait, we gave her a certificate of divorce. But what does Jesus say? I allowed that because of the hardness of your heart. That's not the plan. So they took what was meant to be a protection For a woman, really. Because a man, he didn't need the certificate of divorce. He just would go and get married again. But for the woman, she was was locked in that marriage, even if the husband got remarried. And as an act of mercy, God, through the law of Moses, said, give her a certificate of divorce that she might be able to be taken care of, that she might be able to come back into her family's home. You're still a married woman. You can't come back in. And they could often just be left in a very destitute state. And so it was an act of mercy that the Lord allowed for a certificate of divorce so that when a woman was put out and another one was taken on, that she was not just locked forever in this married state where her husband didn't want her and nobody else would have anything to do with her. So she had the certificate of divorce saying, He's done with me. I'm free. I'm out from underneath that. So then they took that and they said, aha, that's what we'll do. As long as I give a certificate of divorce, then I'm out from underneath it. And this is how they were abusing the system. And I am not going to go into a whole discussion about marriage, divorce, and remarriage here because it's really not even the, the context. The context is, 
you don't esteem the law of God. You don't esteem from the law to the prophets. You don't want anything to do with it. You don't want to have anything to do with John. You had, you were happy when he was beheaded, but there's a group of people that are pressing in and you need to be like them. And yet, that was the last thing that was on their mind. But we are of those people that are pressing into the kingdom, aren't we? And you have to understand that as you press into the kingdom, there's going to be the jeers. There's going to be those that deride. There's going to be those that don't want to give you a job. There's going to be those that are going to uh, treat you differently and they're not going to want to associate with you anymore because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. That you, you read any read any um, stats or polls about what's happening in our country. In the last few years, we have fewer people that are identifying with Christ than at any other time in our history. And we are quickly, the next generation, you know, is coming up. They're not going to know the Lord at all. It is going to change unless a revival takes place. And I'd love to see that happen. But there is no guarantee that's going to happen. Well, but if we pray for it, listen, there's no guarantee that's going to happen. Pray for it. Hope for it. I'm looking for it. I'm asking the Lord for it. But let's be real here. There's been a believers that have been in other countries that have spiraled out of control into a godless you know, worldview that prayed for revival and never saw it. So God can become done with the nation and can move on to a next place. That doesn't mean there's not salvation available. But listen, we have had our revivals. We've had many revivals in this country. And we, I think, need to adjust our mindset is that if we're going to be a part of the kingdom of God, we've got to press into it. Because if you want to just kind of walk down the road and stroll into it and think that all your friends and neighbors and coworkers are going to applaud you, I think those days are quickly vanishing. And we must be those that are willing to press in. Look at verse 19, down through verse 31. We move into this parable about the rich man and Lazarus. And as we look about at this, and the title I gave for this verse is, is the poor man was justified. Now this is the context, right? They were, they were justifying themselves, and they derided his teaching that wealth did not make you right with God. And so here you have it. This this parable is in reaction to their deriding of him. And so he's going to give them a parable about a rich man who was not right with God and yet a poor man that was right with the Lord. And he couldn't make the stakes any higher. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. What's Abraham's bosom? Well, let's read. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. 
But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus his evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from here pass to us. I believe that as Jesus gave this parable in this account, that it was reflecting maybe a real Lazarus, but certainly reflecting a real circumstance. I also believe that what Jesus is describing as a place of comfort and a place of torment was not just hyperbole, and it was not just information to make the story sound a little better. I think he's actually talking about the way it was before he died and rose from the dead. As that all those in faith, when they died, they went to Hades, they were in death, and there in Hades, there was two places that was separated by a great gulf. One was a place of torment, as described by Lazarus, with flames and fire, and another place was a place of comfort and a place of rest. And it is where all believers were prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so, um, to this day, there are still those that are in that place of torment, awaiting final judgment that will happen after the thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth, and those will be sent along with the angels, the Antichrist, and even Satan himself into the lake of fire, which will burn forever. So those in this place of torment, those who did not have faith and trust in the Lord, they are still there. Now, those that are in this place of um, uh, comfort in, in Abraham's bosom, I believe these are the ones that were led out. When we read in Ephesians that Jesus led captivity captive, he led them out. He took them out of this place. Um, into paradise, as, as the Lord said to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. You know, there is an interesting passage in Matthew, and I don't have the chapter in front of me. It's just popping into my mind right now. But it's, it's after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and well before the ascension. But at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when Jesus rose from the dead, we read, and some of the saints were also raised from the dead. That's pretty wild, isn't it? It doesn't say there was a lot of them. It just says some. And they were found and seen walking around the holy city. Wish we had some more information on that passage, but that's all we have. So now when a believer dies, they do not go to this place of Abraham's bosom. They go to be absent from the body, is to be present with Christ. They go immediately into the presence of the Lord. But the significant point of this is to say to these guys that were justifying themselves, who were lovers of money, who were deriding the message of Jesus, was like, listen, let me tell you a story. A rich guy was in a place of torment, and a poor guy was in a place of blessing. You've got it all wrong. The way you think is not right. It's not correct. Let's just take a moment. I want to just make a few points. I think it's just three quick points, just for, for time's sake here. What are the eternal consequences of not being justified by God? Well, number one, it's going to be a place of torment. Actually, it says torments. There's consciousness, there's awareness, and there is a place of torment. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8-10 tells us that after Jesus Christ returns, 
that there is still going to be a place of torment and a flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. So there will be an everlasting destruction that will be experienced, a place of torment for those who do not receive Jesus Christ. This should motivate us to preach the gospel. People are going to face this. Also, the second thing we see here with uh, the rich man, there's no exit. He pleaded to be able to, to get out. And so listen, you can't do that. There's no way out. And then, again, it's a place of torment. There's no exit. And it's a place of conscious torment. He was aware. He was communicating. He was asking. He was desiring things. And there was an awareness of his terrible state. But all of his thinking and all of his rationalizing, we're going to see, was for naught. Let's keep reading as we wrap it up. Verses 27 through 31. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Jesus had just nailed them between the eyes for not listening to the Moses or the prophets. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And of course, Jesus did rise from the dead. And those whose hearts were so hardened would not. Here's the amazing thing. Man's heart can become so hard against God that even if a dead person, a dead family member, was to rise from the dead and come back and preach to a heart that's unwilling to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, they still would not repent. Well, how do you know that? Because Jesus just told us that. Which tells us this, those that end up in a place of eternal destruction are in a place they would never, ever seek to get out of and come through the means that God has provided. God is just. God is not throwing willy-nilly people into hell and saying, oh, no, that was a mistake. They probably would have come to me if I would have given them another chance. That's not the case. The case is such that those that find themselves an eternal separation from God, that if they even had a chance to hear from somebody that had come from hell itself, still smoking, still smelling like sulfur, and was to persuade them with all they had, says they still would not believe. So, some challenging question, the love and the goodness of God that he would send somebody to eternal destruction. But here's the reality. They will never come to saving faith. Not in a thousand lifetimes. Not in ten thousand lifetimes. God is not willing that how many? Any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. Those that find themselves in that place of eternal destruction are not there 
because, well, they just didn't live long enough to hear one more sermon. That's not it. They are there and they will never change their mind. Even if somebody was to come back, they still would not change their mind. And, and Jesus' statement is like, listen, I will be dead and I will come to them. And I'm telling you, they still won't even listen to me. Yeah, but if they saw a family member, oh, time out. We think that a family member is going to be more persuasive than the Son of God and communicating life and death issues? Mm-mm. God is just in all that he's done. And there will be no one in heaven, uh, nobody will be in, in, in uh, uh, hell that should have been in heaven and they ended up there by accident or if they would have just been given one more time. You know, one last statement about this. Think about it from the terms of um, eschatology, the events of the last day. So here we are preaching the gospel. Let's say the rapture happens right now. Anybody, everybody all right with that? Anybody want to take their mortgage with them or anything like that? Okay. So all right, we're just, boom, we're gone. We're up in heaven right now. And then the great tribulation begins, and all kinds of people are getting saved. There's an innumerable host of people that are getting saved. You have the two witnesses. They're prophesying. They're calling fire down from heaven. They're performing miracles. You have angels flying through the air, proclaiming the everlasting gospel of God. And man says, let's make war with God. And they battle, they gather together in the battle of Armageddon, seeing all of these supernatural things taking place. They're like, let's fight him, let's kill him. Oh, come on, man would never do that. Well, have you ever heard of the crucifixion before? They've already done it. And at the end of the age, they will gather together to do it again in the battle of Armageddon, and they will lose. And only those that have, been, have faith in the Lord are those that have actually made it through the tribulation, and I would say showed kindness, the household of Israel will be welcome in. But it's going to be a thousand years, and people aren't going to die, and there's going to be all kinds of mass population growth. And those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will never have to... Um, you know, re-solidify that. We will never have to re-solidify our faith in Jesus Christ. But those that are born during that thousand years, they will have to come to the, faith, the place of putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And Jesus will be on planet Earth, and he'll be in the temple, and he'll be preaching the gospel. It'll be a rule of righteousness and peace. It's going to be, it's, it's not going to be, uh, it's going to be perfect, but there will still be rebellion. And so he will judge with the rod of iron. There will be those that have to be corrected. But at the end of those thousand years, mankind will raise up again to fight God. Here's the point. How many times does God have to give man an opportunity before we realize a hard heart will never come to the Lord um, I'm not going to say the Lord can't bring a person to salvation, but when a person is settled in that hard-heartedness and God says, I'm done, my spirit will never strive with them, that is at a point where God knows mankind, that generation, these people will never come to faith. And so the Lord is just. And those that end up in this place of torment will have rejected the gospel or whatever light God extended to them in their lifetime, and he will be justified. And so this is one of those challenging things. Now, Jesus' point in giving this to them was, guys, you're justifying yourself. You're rejecting Moses. You're not righteous. Look at how you're living your, your, your life. Look at how you're treating marriage. 
You're not right with God. You need to get right with the Lord. You need to be like those that are pressing in. And if you think you're okay, then think of this story and let it weigh on you. And so the Lord gave that to try and bring them around. And um, we will read later on that, um, and maybe we actually, I think we have referenced it, of how Jesus spoke and said, you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. I realize that troubles my Calvinist brothers and sisters that I would emphasize the free will of man. But I'm sorry, it's what Scripture says. Jesus said, you're not willing to come to me that you might have life. Life was extended to these guys. We just read it. But they weren't willing. And they said, no, thank you. And they crucified him. How hard the heart of man can be. Listen, I realize most of you have a soft heart towards the Lord and you receive him and you welcome him. Keep it soft. Keep it soft. How do I do that? Every time he speaks to you, respond. Keep it soft. Keep it soft before the Lord in the word. Let it be like a plow that's going through your heart, turning things over. Let it hit those deep rocks and pop them out so that your heart will remain soft to the things and to the voice of the Lord. Father, we thank you that you are kind and generous, that you are perfect in all of your ways. And Lord, nobody will ever be able to raise a finger and point to you and say, but you didn't give me a chance. Lord, we are grateful that you, who know all things and know the hearts and minds of all people, that Lord, you are just. And I pray that, Lord, we would be those that are pressing in. And as we may maybe watch hostility grow in our world, Lord, that we would never become soft to, towards those um, trials and difficulties and let them push us away, but that we would, we would be hard in our determination to follow you, but, boy, we'd be soft when you speak to us. It would hear what you have to say and we would respond. Lord, we pray for our country. Lord, we pray for our, our loved ones that don't know you, those that don't have faith and trust in you. Maybe they've heard us and they've even banned us from ever mentioning your name again in their presence. Lord, they're still here. They're still drawing breath. And so we pray that you would reach out to them and that you would turn their hearts towards you, that you would bring circumstances to bear upon their life, that would just would push them towards you. They would have no, no other course rather than to run into your arms. Lord, what a, what a joy and blessing it will be to see those that are running in rebellion against you today in your house with us, praising you and worshiping you. So Lord, wherever they are, whatever they're thinking, even whatever they're doing, Lord, we pray you would go to them that you, the good shepherd, would go after that one lost lamb, that you would sweep the house for that lost coin, that you would have your eyes out looking on the horizon for that one that's even making a movement towards you. The Lord, you would go get them. You would save them. You would redeem them. And we pray as a nation, Lord, that you would pour out your grace upon us and that you would grant us another revival, another revival, Lord. We see the way we're going and there's no nation around today that has 
more opportunity or has had more opportunity than us. And so we don't deserve it. But Lord, we know what it does when you do move in that way. And we ask for that. 